Hi everybody. As we begin a new week, um, <clears throat> I want to look at a passage of scripture with you that is very difficult. Um, I've, I was thinking about it, I suppose, I, I was reading through the Gospel of John last night, and uh, it gripped me, as it often does, uh, in uh, Jesus' teaching in John chapter 6. Uh, it's probably one of the most uh, difficult to um, understand teachings of Jesus in his ministry. Uh, as far as an, a kind of a prolonged uh, teaching session, if you will. And it's the longest chapter, I think, in the Gospel of John. 71 verses is how we've broken it down in our, in our Bibles. Uh, it's a very lengthy passage. It's, uh, the chapter opens with the feeding of the 5,000. Miracle or sign, as John refers to it here. <clears throat> And then, of course, Jesus walks on the water to uh, his disciples in the middle of the night. And then on the next day, after he's fed the multitude of uh, people, they're looking for him again. And they're wanting him to maybe give an encore uh, from the previous day, it seems. And instead of feeding them with <clears throat> literal food, uh, again, he feeds them with instruction, and it is instruction that is puzzling in many ways. And I'm not going to give a full exposition of this chapter, uh, or of even a section of this chapter. What I want to do instead is read through some of what Jesus says, and then talk about the way that he uses figurative language in this passage. Because what's interesting about this particular teaching is he uses several figures of speech and along the way he actually defines those figures of speech and interprets them for us so that there there shouldn't be as much confusion as there often is and we can imagine that the original listeners would have had a greater difficulty perhaps in making the connections that we can more easily make because we can look at the words printed on, pa on a page. We can go back and review. Whereas if we were there in person originally, we would have had to remember, what, now what did he just say? And, and to tie some of these things together, you almost need, at least we do, in our Western, uh, more reader-oriented, uh, less than orally-oriented worldview, uh, we need to go back and review. We need to look and, and see. And, and the beauty of it is the keys are all there for understanding Jesus' most, perhaps most difficult teaching. It's a teaching that drove many people away from following him. It's a teaching that overwhelmed his disciples even, those who, the, the twelve who would stay with him even after this. And so some of the things that he has to say here are very difficult to understand, but the keys for understanding are actually right there in the text. And that is helpful for us to remember, uh, because when we're interpreting difficult passages of Scripture throughout the Bible, oftentimes the keys to understanding are actually right there in the text. Uh, in fact, I would argue that they always are, unless there is some intentional ambiguity. Sometimes the Bible doesn't answer the questions that we have. Sometimes we are left with a bit of mystery. Sometimes we are left with a puzzling uh, saying or a puzzling teaching, and maybe we might 
be able to go to somewhere else in Scripture to bring clarity, but sometimes, in rare cases, that's not the case. Something is left either open-ended or uh, mysterious, and we need to accept that, that sometimes the Scriptures don't answer the questions that we might like them to. Uh, but it always repays uh, a, a closer look. And so it's good for us to, when we come against something that's hard to understand, to just look harder, keep looking, look longer, stick with it, keep reading and rereading and rereading, and pay attention to what's there in the text. So this is going to be a little bit of a, a simple practice exercise of observation so we can just pay attention to what jesus says here and we actually don't need to go anywhere else to understand the meaning of most of what he says here so just to pick up the story um, to get the whole thing in front of us i'm going to pick up in verse 22 we could probably start later but i like this story a lot and so remembering that the feeding of the five thousand was on the previous day uh, picking up in John 6, 22. I'll read through the end of the chapter just so you get the full weight of, of what's going on here. <clears throat> so starting in verse 22. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him, because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, 
Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. So, intense uh, words, especially there at the end when we see the response of the people, they're just grumbling throughout, grumbling from the Jews, disputing among the Jews who were listening to him, and then grumbling even by the disciples. And so we see here that the disciples, their initial gut 
reaction is similar to the other Jews who are listening, those who actually walk away, but they have a fundamental commitment. Even though they don't understand what he was talking about, they're committed to staying with him. They believe who he is, even if they don't understand what he's talking about. And the rest of the people in this crowd who ate of the uh, uh, ate of the loaves and the fishes on the previous day, they walk away not wanting to listen to, not being able to listen to his hard words here. So let's go back through and pick up some of the imagery and the way that it gets fleshed out and defined. Even early in the passage, Jesus, he starts by raising a question. Do not, or raising an image and addressing them uh, in such a way that they question him initially. But what we see throughout the passage is that even though they start by addressing him directly, eventually they start talking among themselves about him rather than actually addressing him directly. But he commands them in verse 27, Don't work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. So notice he's using an, a figure of speech here. He commands them, Don't work to earn food that's going to spoil, but instead work for the food that endures or remains to eternal life. So he says, Work for that food, but then he says, it's the, the food that the Son of Man will give to you. So there's an interesting interplay here between work for this, and yet the Son of Man is going to give it to you as a gift. We often see that tension in the Scriptures. We see it uh, with regard to wisdom in Proverbs chapter 2. Uh, we see it in Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is working in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. So work, and yet... God's going to give you a gift. Work for wisdom, Proverbs 2. Dig for it like it's buried treasure. Work for it. Work hard. Study diligently to get it. And yet God is the one who gives wisdom as a gift. And so there's this combination here, that, and he's using it uh, in connection with what they're thinking, it seems. And so then they raise the question, well, what are we doing? What, what, what kind of work should we be doing? What must we do to be doing the works of God? Now notice they use the plural, and they seem to mean, what should we be doing um, to do the deeds that God requires? What, what, what should be our, what does God require of us? What is he calling us to do? What do you say, teacher, that we may, that we have to do to get the food that endures to eternal life. Notice Jesus' response. This is the work, singular, of God. Now there's an ambiguity in that statement, in that little phrase, the work of God. Does he mean this is the work that you should be doing for God, or does he mean this is the work that God does? And it, that's the work that really matters. The singular deed that matters is the work that God does. And how does he define that? That you believe in him whom he has sent. So to believe in Jesus is the work either, or maybe both, maybe there's a do, an, an intentional ambiguity that we're supposed to see both sides. The work that you're supposed to be doing is not really a work at all. You're supposed to believe in Jesus. But that too is a work that God in fact does. He produces that faith in us. He enables it and empowers us to believe in Jesus so that we follow him and stick to him. But then notice, they're still bent on these signs. Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? 
and then they want, they're very interested in food here. They saw a sign the previous day. The feeding of the 5,000 is a sign that's supposed to point to who Jesus is as the good shepherd who provides food for his people, the great king who cares for the needs of the hungry. And they are stuck on this food. So they just saw a sign, but they didn't really understand the significance of the sign. You can see a sign, and you can totally miss the significance of the sign. A sign is always supposed to point to something beyond itself. And so what these people are having a problem. They see the sign, but they don't understand what the sign points to. They haven't gotten the point. And so they want to see another sign. And they've got food on the brain, particularly. They go back to the Old Testament. They say, our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Now Jesus, when he responds to this, he says, it's not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. It's not Moses. So in their claim, as it is written, he, they're thinking of Moses. Now, this is a quotation, probably, from the Old Testament. They say, as it is written, they're quoting Psalm 78, 24, most likely, but it's, they've misunderstood it. They're applying it, and I, I suppose Jesus knows what they're thinking. They're, they're thinking about Moses providing this uh, manna, and they'll say something about that in a little while. But Jesus says... No, it wasn't Moses. And so they're even reading their Bible, Psalm 78, 24, wrongly, where it, they're thinking of God. Uh, the, the, the text is talking about God giving them the manna in the wilderness, and they've misunderstood it and attached it to Moses, as though Moses gave them the manna from heaven. It's very clear uh, that God is the one who gives manna from heaven. Uh, this exact language of giving the people bread from heaven comes also from Nehemiah 9.15 where it is Nehemiah is praying and he is uh, praising God for giving the people the manna, the bread from heaven. But now Jesus takes this and speaks of the bread of God, the true bread from heaven. And the bread from heaven in one sense was the manna. That's the Old Testament phrase that's used in Nehemiah 9.15, bread from heaven, that's referring to the manna in the wilderness. But Jesus then turns it and speaks of the bread, the true bread from heaven, the bread of God, and he defines it as himself, he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And so they want that kind of bread. Now, rather than going through this verse by verse, let me just draw your attention to phrases, and you'll just reread the passage and think through these, because Jesus makes this train very clear. So he speaks of the food, back in the passage, we just, the earlier part of the passage, the food that remains for eternal life. And then he equates that with the true bread from heaven. And then he equates that with the bread of God. And then he defines that as he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And then he speaks of himself as the bread of life, the bread that comes down from heaven, and then finally the living bread that has come down from heaven. And so he's very much identifying himself as what the manna in the wilderness pointed to. Um, and he's going to make the point here that the people in the wilderness, they ate the bread that was given to them by God in the wilderness, the manna, and yet they died. They died. 
So the bread that they received was good and it was nourishing to a point, but Jesus is talking about giving them food that's of a different character entirely. It didn't provide eternal life. They still died. And so Jesus then says um, he is this bread that he's talking about. They want the bread. They, they're thinking about a physical morsel, something they can eat that will enable them to live forever. And they want that instead. And he is saying, no, it's me, it's me, it's me. Um, he says, I am the bread of life in verse 35. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And this is another piece that we could track through the passage. Whoever comes to me equals whoever believes in me. So whoever comes to me, so to come to Jesus is to believe in Jesus, in this teaching. Whoever comes to me is whoever believes in me. He's going to further elaborate who are these people. Who, whoever comes to me, whoever believes in me, they are all that the Father gives to me. So whoever comes to me is being given to Jesus by the Father. All that the Father gives to me. And then he's going to define that further. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father. And he quotes from Isaiah 54.13 in verse 45. Isaiah 54, 13, they will all be taught by God. And Isaiah 54 is elaborating on the new covenant that's coming. The new covenant that's coming. Those who are beneficiaries of the new covenant, those who are in relationship with God on the terms of the new covenant, will all be taught by God. And so he defines those who come to him, those who believe in him, as those whom the Father has given to him, and as those who who have heard and learned from the Father. And so here he shows that it's the Father's work that brings a person to Jesus, that enables a person to believe in him. And so he speaks also of the Father's will in the midst of this, in connection with doing the Father's will. He says, I don't do my own will, I do the Father's will. What is the Father's will? The Father's will is that the Son should lose nothing of all that the Father has given him. And that's where you get this repeated phrase throughout the, 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 the teaching, the Son will raise him up on the last day. And so Jesus is essentially saying, everyone who comes to me, everyone who believes in me, will be resurrected on the last day. Jesus says, I will raise them from the dead. And there will be none who believe in me who don't get raised from the dead on the last day. That connection is vital. And it's a part of Jesus' teaching, an important part of Jesus' teaching here. And so that's the Father's will that Jesus does. He um, it's guaranteed that the Son will lose no one along the way, and that those who believe in Him will be raised from the dead on the last day. But He also elaborates on the Father's will slightly differently. The Father's will is also everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. So the Father's will is that Jesus will preserve His people all the way to Resurrection Day, and the Father's will is that whoever believes in Him, whoever looks on the Son and believes in the Son, will have eternal life. And so that's, that's the Father's will. That, and that is a guaranteed reality. Whoever believes in Him will have eternal life. Why? Because that's God's will. That's why. And so we see this coming through as the Father 
uh, draws people. So verse thirty, verse forty-four. No one can come to me. So no one. So if it, if whoever comes to me is whoever believes in Jesus, then this means no one is able to believe in Jesus unless the Father who sent Jesus draws that person. And so he uses that. Uh, phraseology a couple of times in the passage, but then he defines it. Everyone who is, so this is verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And he then says, he repeats this and explains it in slightly different terms in verse, in verse 65. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. That word granted is just the normal word for give. No one can come to me unless it is given to him by the Father. So the drawing of the Father is defined by Jesus as the Father giving to a person the ability to come to Jesus. That's not an ability we have naturally. You and I come into this world, and every person on the face of the planet comes into this world with a fundamental inability to approach Jesus with faith. We have to be changed in order to do that. God has to give us something that we do not naturally have, an ability that we do not have by birth in this world. We come into this world unable to believe in Jesus. And so Jesus says the only way this is going to work is if God grants and draws a person, provides that inability, provides the ability that is needed. Jesus uses this imagery uh, of being of, of the bread throughout the passage, and he's pointing very clearly to himself. But then we come down to into verses 52, and they've understood now that he's talking about eating bread. And they've not understood the figure of speech. They're taking him literally. And so we've talked about my issues with literal interpretation of Scripture. And here's one of the ways that in the Bible itself, taking someone literally is a problem. And so here it is that Jesus' listeners are taking him literally. Verse 52, the Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? They're taking him literally, and Jesus doesn't want them to take him literally. <laughs> so we have to be careful about that. And so he explains what he means, but he explains it with more figurative language. This is very fascinating as to how Jesus teaches here. He doesn't explain the metaphor by telling them literally what he's talking about, even though he actually already has done that. He's defined himself. I am the bread of life. He's explained that as a metaphor. And so they should have understood that he's speaking metaphorically. But instead, he just goes further. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, which would be very offensive uh, to the Jew, and it would be breaking the Mosaic law, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. So what does that mean? Well, he's using a metaphor. What does it mean? Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood is simply a way of expressing whoever believes in me. Whoever believes in me is whoever feeds on me. And whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood, eats my flesh and drinks my blood, is simply a powerful metaphor for believing in Jesus. It, it, it shows us that faith has this depth to it. It's not simply about believing fact. 
that's about who Jesus is. It is receiving Jesus personally into ourselves. That's what believing in him means in part. A part of it is not simply, well, we believe that Jesus is the Messiah. We believe that he is the Son of God. Those facts are true and they must be believed, but beyond that, there must be a personal reception of Jesus that says, I welcome him, I receive him into my very life. And that's what Jesus is describing here in these powerful metaphorical terms. And so he goes on and he uses another metaphor. And so he, he uses another image that is a very important image that's going to come up later in John's Gospel, but this is actually where we learn what it means. Whoever, verse 56, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood, so we just defined that, in the context it means whoever believes in me, abides in me, abides in me, or remains in me. Whoever believes in me, remains in me. And so here we find very clearly, I think, that Jesus is defining faith as something that endures, that remains, that perseveres. Whoever believes in me, remains in me. If someone doesn't remain in Jesus, like Judas, they haven't really believed in him. And so Jesus is defining that for us here. So what does it mean? Well, if we've seen earlier, um, and, and so should we take the abides in me literally, or should we take it as a figure of speech? Well, later we're going to see that Jesus builds this out as a figure of speech in John chapter 15, the famous vine and the branches passage, where Jesus speaks of branches abiding in a vine. And so I think that if we read through that, then we have to understand that here he is also talking about uh, metaphorical reality. So what does that mean? Well, if we go back and we understand uh, just to verse 54, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood, notice that this exact same phrase we're looking at in verse 56. What comes next? Has eternal life. Has eternal life. So then when we come to verse 56, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, that phrase abides in me must mean has eternal life. And so Jesus' teaching here is that, and the, the corollary is true too, abides in me and I in him. They all goes one together. There's this mutual indwelling, mutual abiding that happens. And that is just a way of defining eternal life. So whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I abide in that person means that person has eternal life. So when we go to John 15 and we see the vine and the branches and he speaks of abiding in him and uh, he abiding in us, he's talking about what it means to experience eternal life. And so the metaphor then comes from this passage and goes on over into John 15 and helps us understand what Jesus is talking about there as well. So this is a hard saying as the disciples themselves. Now, you've got to understand that especially in John's Gospel, the word disciple, and this passage makes this really clear, doesn't necessarily mean a believer. His, even the twelve disciples. One of them was an unbeliever and they get identified here. But what we see is that many of his disciples turn away and don't follow him anymore. So how can they be disciples if they don't follow? They're not. They're not true disciples. They're not genuine disciples. John's Gospel makes it clear that 
There's a kind of belief that is incomplete, that is not true believing. Because we do read statements about some folks believing in him. And, and here he's talking to his disciples, and he says, verse 64, there are some of you, disciples, who do not believe, who are not believing in me. And then, of course, John gives this interpretive comment that Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. So there's a connection here that's made. Judas is a very important character in the story of the Gospels, but in John's Gospel in particular, Judas becomes the poster child, if you will, for someone who appears to be a believer, appears to be a disciple, but never was at all. And he is, in fact, a betrayer and an enemy here to fulfill the Scriptures. And so many of his disciples, verse 66, turned back and no longer walked with him. And so that again shows us this reality that someone can look like a follower of Jesus, someone can profess belief in him for a long time even, and yet they can tr be truly not a believer, not a disciple. And so we have to be careful about when we're reading the scriptures or when we're thinking about our relationship with other people in the church, about assuming too much about the connection a person has to Jesus. We are to look carefully at the manner of a person's life, but we look at that over the course of time. And Judas sticks with him at this point. I mean, think about that. Many disciples leave at this moment, but Judas stays. And for all intents and purposes, and the eleven would have been looking at Judas and thinking, well, he's one of us. He's sticking with Jesus. He is faithful. And we need to know that that's the reality in our church life today. Many times we may be fooled by other people, or we may even deceive ourselves. There is a danger of, the, of that that is presented to us repeatedly in the New Testament, that we can deceive ourselves about our relationship with Jesus. And so there's a danger and a warning that comes out of that. And so then what we see here is that um, finally and ultimately the, the twelve are challenged at this point. They are troubled by Jesus' saying. They don't understand the imagery. They don't understand the purpose, the point of what he's saying. And yet Jesus asks him if they want to leave and Peter representing the twelve says, no, we know that we believe, we have come to believe and we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And they know that he has the words that bring eternal life. And so even though they might not have understood his teaching in this passage, they, they know that he's teaching the truth. He's teaching the true way of salvation and eternal life. And they dare not turn back even when they don't understand. And that is a good call for us as well. We may not understand everything in this book. We, we won't. We can't. Uh, even as we work hard for our whole lives and we work hard together to come to a greater understanding, uh, there are depths and layers in this wonderful book that God has given to us that we will not uh, plumb the depths of during our lifetime. And we should just accept that up front. But when we come to pieces of life or pieces of scripture that we don't understand, it's not a time to turn away. 
Uh, it's a time to lean in, in fact, and to seek ever more clarity as we work together in the body of Christ to understand God's Word uh, as a body. And so I share this with you just to think through some of the, the figurative language and the way that it's used and the danger of attempting to take something literally that is not intended to be taken literally and to see very clearly that at least in this passage you should be able to tell that there are, there are indicators that Jesus is speaking figuratively and that he wants to be taken figuratively and not literally. That's generally true throughout the scriptures. And so as we seek to interpret our Bible well and as we seek to cling to Jesus and to eat his flesh and drink his blood, to believe in him, to trust him for our lives, we need to know that sometimes what he says is going to be hard for us to swallow and that's okay. We need to trust him even if we don't understand him and work through some of those pieces and some of those passages and some of those difficulties in life that we have a hard time with. He will help us. He is the one who has the words of eternal life. It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. Uh, and so we, we trust him with matters of salvation. We trust him with the matters of eternal life. And we trust him with our day-to-day -day existence in this world. Uh, he's really good, and he's going to nourish us and secure us and ensure that we make it to the end. No one, no one can snatch us from his hand, and he will lose nothing of what the Father has given to him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for securing us so strongly and so powerfully in your Son. And thank you that the union we have with Jesus Christ is unbreakable, and eternal. Thank you for the life that you've granted us. Help us to enjoy it, even now, in the midst of a broken world, in the midst of broken bodies, in the midst of sin that continues. Father, give us joy and give us victory as we seek to live in this world trusting Jesus, clinging to him no matter what challenges we face. And we thank you that we have promises that are, that are guarantees, that are rock-solid, it cannot be taken from us, that we are secure in Christ, come what may. We ask, Father, that you would send your Son to retrieve your people. We ask that you would bring a final end to this history and bring us into the new creation. We long, we long to see Jesus face to face. And so we pray that you would bring it to pass and bring it to pass soon. Grant us endurance, enduring faith until that day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.